Granite Hills Credit Union is an equal housing lender and is federally insured by the NCUA. Vermonters agree, every child deserves a strong start. But how do we help them succeed? 80% of the brain develops by age three and 90% by age five. So, for our youngest children, learning starts day one. Through reading, singing, talking, and playing, we help them build the skills they need to succeed in school, in relationships, in life. Join the statewide conversation about the importance of the first years at letsgrowkids.org. Uh, talking about the definition here on the program of how we can sometimes switch topics pretty uh, pretty dramatically. Let's give a nice warm radio from a welcome this morning. Blake Harris is joining us. He's a writer and filmmaker who's based out of uh, NYC. And he is the author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. Blake, thanks for joining us. What do you think about global warming? I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's a bit of a lighter topic to Council Wars. But, yeah. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. So tell us, what was the scene back in 1990 between these two companies? Sure. I'll take you back in time a little bit. We go back to 1990 when Nintendo wasn't just the market leader in video games. They were video games. They were the entire industry. They had over 95% of the market, and they were literally taking out ads to protect their trademark and say that Nintendo is not synonymous with video games in the way that Jacuzzi has become for hot tubs or Kleenex tissues. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was shocking that someone would even have a place in the market, a second place, let alone eventually overtake them. But that's exactly what Sega did, and they did it in about three years. Wow, okay. And they did it because of one guy. Well, one real guy and one fictional guy, I would say... Uh, Tom Kalinske, who was the CEO of Sega of America from 1990 to 96, he uh, shepherded that rise. And then also a uh, fictional hedgehog named Sonic, who became Sega's mascot and uh, allowed them to go up against Nintendo's Mario. Okay. Tell me, you got to explain this more to me. How did this fictional character play a role? <laughs> sure. So Nintendo, when they were uh, dominating the market, their most popular game and their most popular franchise was Super Mario Brothers, which still is to this day. And uh, Sega knew that they had to create some sort of Mario killer, a game that could be as popular as Mario and also kind of come to represent the company that people knew the Sega name. And so they held an in-house mascot competition to develop this character. People submitted ideas like armadillos, rabbits, teddy bears, and the winning entry was a headshot named Mr. Beetlemouth, who originally had a busty girlfriend named Madonna. He was in a rock band. He had a bang. And then over time, Sega of America quickly uh, changed that into the Blue Hedgehog, Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, which we all now know and love and became the most popular game of 1991. Wow. Okay. All right. So then, uh, so what happened three years after 1990 in terms of the domination? Sure. So Sega initially proved that another player could exist in this market, which is valuable for today, where we still have multiple players. And then uh, they surpassed Nintendo, but one of the ways that they were able to do so was on the back of just basically a strategy of freedom, allowing developers to develop games for an older audience, making video games mainstream, and with that came adult themes, violence, and uh, things of that nature. And uh, this was highlighted by the release of a game called Mortal Kombat, which was the bloodiest game to date. And uh, it was especially significant culturally because it ended up leading Senate subcommittee hearings in Washington, D.C., and uh, sort of a, a proposed regulation of the industry and then a maturation of the industry into actually an industry where uh, there was a trade organization, there was a trade show each year, there was a rating board, 
and basically a lot more of what we have today as opposed to the wild west days that Sega and Nintendo officially were fighting in. When when this was beginning here, did Nintendo and Sega develop their own product in-house, or has this always been something where you take the product of outside people and then buy it? Well, it's a good question, because uh, both of them wanted, ideally, you develop everything in-house so you would own it, but Nintendo became so popular that they needed to have outside developers, and outside developers also wanted to make money off this thing. Uh, but Nintendo was known for having very strict licensing agreements, which angered a lot of developers. They could only publish a certain amount of titles per year. It had to be up to Nintendo's state standards, which meant that Nintendo kind of controlled when it was released. Uh, the developers had to buy the cartridges from Nintendo, from the physical product. Mm. Um, and Sega, you know, they embraced that enmity towards Nintendo and also used it to their advantage because they didn't have as many good games as Nintendo had. So it was almost... Uh, the thematic battle between the two was that between freedom and control, Nintendo was very controlling, but at the same time, they felt that their users deserved a certain uh, video game experience. And Sega felt like, you know, good games, bad games, adult games, good games, will let anything be on the system because people should have the right to choose. And it's kind of analogous to what you see today between Apple and Google, though, in right. a different context. Right, right, okay. Okay, so then what happened? Why did Sega lose its, lose its advantage? Um, well, so after Sega surpassed Nintendo, climbing up to 55 or 60% of the market, uh, it seemed like great times were ahead. But, you know, one thing I didn't expect when I got into researching and writing this book was that I figured the most exciting battle I wanted to be writing about was that between Sega and Nintendo. That was the thesis of the story. But what ended up becoming much more dramatic and interesting was the internal battle between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. Mm-hmm. Sega of Japan was the parent company... You know, that's, that's where Sega was founded. And then Sega of America was the subsidiary we had here in the Bay Area. And what happened was that Sega of America was dramatically successful. That was a group that was achieving 60% market share. But Sega of Japan, the parent company, never had more than 20%. So it was a strange dynamic of jealousy as well as a desire to kind of stop doing what they were doing and try something new. Whereas over here, they were just kind of hitting their stride. And that, in many ways, was responsible for the downfall of Sega, and it, and it happened rather quickly. Hmm. Okay, what, what, what explains the difference in terms of popularity? Uh, you know, a couple of... I, there's obviously a lot of reasons, but I think that the number one is just the appetite for risk. Sega of America saw themselves as... as David in this David and Goliath battle and felt like the only chance they had was to try outside-the-box things. Uh, in commercials, they went after Nintendo. They came up with very edgy commercials. Uh, previously, commercials for video games had always aired during Saturday morning cartoons or after-school cartoons. Mm-hmm. But Sega tried to speed them upward. They premiered them during the MTV Music Awards. They, uh, mm-hmm. they played their commercials on MTV, on Nickelodeon. You know, they were trying to kind of capture that early 90s zeitgeist of change, sort of pioneered by Bill Clinton and the grunge movement. And they really embraced all that. But Sega Japan was much more tame. They didn't want to go after their competitor. Uh, in America, they gave away that game, Sonic Hedgehog, for free with the system, with the thought that, you know, mm-hmm. as long as we get that game onto people, get people playing that game, but one of my others, Japan didn't feel that that was a prudent way to release this game. And there was a lot of problems like that. And, you know, I think <laughs> as an outsider, we would hope that at some point, Japan would at least be willing to try these things, and maybe it would fail, or maybe it would just, there would be, it would be, some other cultural difference that prevents different working. But they were very resistant to that, 
And uh, in the end, I think that was really what doomed them. Mm-hmm. You know, this um, going after them uh, sounds similar to the way Ben and Jerry's went after haagen and portrayed them as, you know, being the big corporate bully. Yep, exactly. So you say that the uh, the downfall of Sega's uh, advantage, short-term advantage, happened quickly. Well, how come? Well, you know, the thing with video games is that they have these, say, five- to seven-year life cycles of the console, um, and, and that was kind of what interested me about getting into the story, because it's obviously a metaphorical war, but I was imagining what a war where, whether you win or lose, every five years you have a new chance to sort of start from the beginning, and that's is inspiring if you're not doing well, but daunting if you're, you are excelling like Sega was. And so it's all about the next console and making sure that you can stay on top. And in the case of Sega, um, after the Sega Genesis, which was their 16-bit system that they found success with, they were always looking forward. They uh, almost made, made Tom Kulinski and Sega tried to partner with Sony to create what would have been the Sega PlayStation. Uh, and if that sounds familiar, it's because Sony yeah. then went on their own and released the the Sony PlayStation after Japan nixed that idea for Sega. Right. And then a similar thing happened with the Nintendo 64. So Sega basically had the chance to develop the two systems that ended up leading to their demise. And so there's something poetic about that, but also something sad to see how close they could have come to continuing throughout the rest of the 90s and probably to this day. Mm-hmm. So where did Sony play into all of this? Well, it was really interesting because, you know, the, the book focuses primarily on Sega and Nintendo, but by virtue of that, we end up touching a lot on Sony, yeah. who's kind of waiting in the wings on the sidelines throughout all this. And in 1991, Nintendo uh, was supposed to make a public announcement declaring a new partnership with Sony to make the Nintendo PlayStation, um, which actually recently did resurface on Friday, and there was photos all over the internet of this, this long-coveted, mysterious device. Uh, but it was real, and Nintendo, at the 11th hour, scorned Sony. They publicly humiliated them which made Sony kind of want to go in their own direction or at least find a new partner, and then they did in Sega, and then that didn't work out as well. And uh, after being scorned twice, Sony decided to go on their own, and it worked out very, very well for them. The mm-hmm. Sony PlayStation is the, was the most successful console to date, and uh, obviously that's a big part of Sony's business today. You know, they've come a, a long way from Walkman. So what's the, what's the market split these days? The market split these days is, uh, you know, the, the two big players are now Sony and Microsoft, uh, you know, the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One, and Nintendo's also uh, in there as well, though, to a much smaller degree. Sony's currently leading this new generation battle, but uh, it's really close. And, and part of the reason it's close is because I can tell you 50 things that separated Sega and Nintendo back in the day, you know, their, their mentalities, what kinds of games they would publish, but nowadays that's not really the case. It's hard to really differentiate the two. Obviously, they each have their own proprietary hardware, but because the industry has gotten so big, um, you know, we can't really run on backroom dealings and personal alliances anymore because the risk is just too high. So, um, you know, both consoles seem to be doing well. Sony has the early edge, but it's just not, it's just not the kind of battle that once it was. Mm-hmm. Where, at what point did Microsoft sneak in here? So Microsoft came in around the year 2000 with their Xbox uh, to compete against the Sony PlayStation 2. And Microsoft didn't even want to get into the video game business. They just saw Sony succeeding uh, and, and frankly didn't want to, to, to give up the living room to Sony because they felt like, you know, this was going to be the new central hub of your, of your entertainment system in the living room, which is kind of true. 
And if I were to describe one difference between the PlayStation 4 nowadays and Xbox One, it's really that Sony, that Microsoft's trying to adopt the mentality of being your central hub for your entertainment needs. Um, you know, toggling between television and your TVR and all these things. Yeah. And it hasn't really fully clicked, though, uh, you know, it has been more successful, and they are even developing original content the same way that Netflix does. Hmm. We're talking with uh, Blake Harris. He's the author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. So what did you learn in this book that you can share with us that would have some applicability to somebody in business or that might have some applicability, I don't know, maybe to, uh, I don't want to say life, that's probably too heavy here. But, <laughs> no, but some, no, no, you know, it's a good but, question yeah. because uh, you know, my interest in the story is always the character's and the business principles. I mean, I love video games, but I hadn't even really been playing them by the point by the time I was writing this book. And it is really just a human story. And with that in mind, I, my, my ideal audience as I wrote this was my grandmother, who's somebody who knows nothing about video games, except that I used to thank her buy me them when I was a kid. And you know, but the kind of stories that really drew me in were uh, a good example is is the case of Walmart. You know, Walmart is a gigantic retailer. Uh, and back in 1990, Nintendo was responsible for nearly 10% of their profits. So this small section of their store was generating that much money. And with that, you know, that success came leverage. And Nintendo had a reputation for saying to retailers that if you carry their competitors' products, then, you know, mysteriously your next shipment might not yeah. arrive on time or <laughs> arrive at all. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they ended up going through some antitrust litigation in the following years. So uh, I think that there was a lot of truth to those rumors. And... Uh, so in the case of Walmart, after Tom Flinsky took over, uh, he flew down to Bentonville, Arkansas with his right-hand man, Shinobu Toyota. They showed off the Sega Genesis. They showed off this hot new game, Sonic the Hedgehog, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And uh, the electronic merchant um, basically said, yeah, this is great, but we're not going to carry this. Because why would we? You know, if we're successful with Nintendo, we do not want to upset them. And, uh, you know, that really bothered Tom and Shinobu and, you know, for me, this whole book was kind of like behind-the-scenes support of my childhood, and I think that we all sort of naively and or ideas, idealistically assume that there's a meritocracy to what products are sold and what products are offered, but oh, there yeah. is a lot of deals that go on behind the scenes and, and, and uh, you know, non-business reasons for doing those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So as, as Tom Kalinske and Shinobu Toyota were leaving the Walmart headquarters in Bentville, Arkansas, they were frustrated by this. And they saw that across the street from the headquarters, there was a mall with a, a four rent sign above one of the buildings. Um, and so they rented the space. They opened the Sega Genesis store. They did not sell any products. They just invited people to come in and play the Genesis for free all day long. They bought every billboard in Bentonville. They bought the seat cushions at the football game. And they basically turned Bentonville into Segaville. And uh, eventually, so many people were going into the flagship Walmart and asking for the Sega Genesis and being told that they didn't have it. Uh -huh. That uh, executive called up Tom a couple of weeks later and said, you know, we give up. Please just take the billboards down. We'll carry your product. Wow. Wow. And so to me, that's like, you know, that's a lesson that doesn't apply to video games. And it's kind of a, it's a great life lesson. You know, we all hear about how persistence is something that we need to, uh, to show in everything we do. And it's an important value, but... Those are the real-life examples that show you how it can pay off. And it definitely doesn't always pay off, but uh, it can. And it's kind of a matter of thinking outside the box and figuring out what is, how can you actually get Walmart, the big company, to listen and think it was great to do things like that. Huh. Kind of like is a good lesson for kids about how to get stuff from their parents. <laughs> yes. If you hold your breath for a really long time and buy every billboard, you'll get rid of it. 
And I don't know what the deal is. If the intended audience here was your grandmother, I mean, did you, you know, need to sully this book up with littering it with, you know, one swear word after another? Every other word, I mean, seems to be, you know, some vulgar phrase or something. Uh, I did. Uh, I think that there were that many swear words in there. No, I'm kidding. I, I didn't actually find any. Um, is the okay. is the current system today what you what I would I guess call an open system? I mean, is that are there? Because it seems you know we have Champlain College up here in Vermont, which has got a great reputation for people making games, and it's a there's actually a gaming program. None of them have ambulances with them though. So is that? I mean, is it now just a completely open system? And Mark? Yeah. Oh, sorry, you cut off a second. We're asking about the open system. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's incredibly much more open than Nintendo. And even to this day, Nintendo, who's now at just a third in these console wars, still kind of uh, has, has a closed system. But uh, today, you know, there are much, the, these companies realize that they're, the importance of keeping those lines of communication up with the developers and taking their content to their advantage. And even... You know, on a smaller level, the games that aren't being made for 5 or $10 million, just like the independent games that you or I would try to make in our, you know, basement and, and try to sell, uh, both Sony and Microsoft, and although especially Sony, have been very friendly to the independent community. Mm-hmm. So they both kind of realize the value of keeping those people happy, and it only really helps them in the end. Like, they, they are essentially paying a toll to, to use your road, so the more people that you have traveling, the more money you're going to make. Right, right. You're making a movie out of this, huh? We're making a couple of movies. We're making a documentary and a feature film. And uh, we're lucky enough to have Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and Scott Rudin uh, producing both of those films. And Seth and Evan are attached to write and direct uh, the Sony feature film adaptation. Wow. All right. So you're going to be, uh, you're gonna be in uh, Nintendo world here pretty soon. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks for your time this morning. It's, uh, it's quite a story, quite a battle. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mark. Have a great day. You too. Blake Harris is the author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. Uh, We'll take your calls the rest of the way this morning. Love to hear from you at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. You can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. You're also welcome to uh, shoot me an email if that's uh, the only way you can communicate with us. Much rather hear from you, but I know some of you are trapped in the cubicle. You can send me an email at my Green Mountain Access account at Mark, M-A-R-K at gmavt.net. They, by the way, are a division of Waitsfield and Champlain Valley Telecom. You can give them a jingle today to sign up for their outstanding internet service. In 2015, you must have a partner on the internet. You can reach them at one 888 That's one 888 And again, you'll get a lot of information if you go to their website, at gmavt.net. That's going to wrap things up for hour number one. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. We'll check news first, and we'll uh, find out what's going on with our White House crew, and then take your calls the rest of the way. FM 96.1 WDEV Warren, AM 550 WDEV, Waterbury, Montpelier. AP Radio News. I'm Rita Foley.